This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for November 25th, 2016. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, news writer Sam Keen joins Alexa Billow to discuss scientists that work the night shift as part of a special issue on circadian science. And David Grimm is here with a roundup of stories from our daily news site. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, and its members. Find AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aaas.org. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. First up, we have a story on watching cement dry. (laughs) So we're just going to sit here while you listen to us watch cement dry. Okay. (laughs) Actually, we're going to talk about how cement isn't as harmful as previously thought. Dave, what kind of harms can cement possibly cause? There's two things cement does that are bad for the environment. First of all, making the cement is bad because limestone, which is in the cement, is turned into lime by baking it at these really high temperatures. And what that does actually is it releases a lot of carbon dioxide, which is a very potent greenhouse gas, into the air. But just the heating itself Mm -hmm. also releases a lot of carbon dioxide because to heat something to those temperatures, you got to burn a lot of fossil fuels in the cement kilns that are used. So cement has long been known not to be very great for the environment. In fact, scientists estimate that 5% of all global greenhouse gas emissions from fossil fuels in factories comes from the production of cement. Well, basically, cement is the building block of modern civilization. (laughs) There's a lot of it. It has a big carbon footprint. But now there's this flip side. Cement actually soaks up CO2 like a carbon dioxide sponge. The question is, does that cancel out the emissions from its creation? Right. So CO2 actually can enter the tiny pores in cement. And when it does, it encounters a variety of chemicals, which basically sort of trap it there. And Scientists knew that happened. They knew cement was absorbing some CO2. They just didn't know how much. And that was the purpose behind this this new study. And there are two prongs here. One, they, what, run around the globe looking at how cement is used? Right. They looked at data from um, how cement is used all around the world, including 
They were looking at the thickness of concrete walls. They were visiting building sites in China, which is a huge user and a manufacturer of cement. They were trying to figure out like how long this cement lasts and where it's used and what happens to the concrete after buildings are torn down. And then they went back to the lab and they put all these figures together. Um, and then they also calculated like how much CO2, all of the cement in its various states was absorbing. They fed it into all of these fancy computer models. <laughs> and basically what they found is that nearly a quarter of the gases that are released by making cement are actually eventually reabsorbed by the cement itself. That's actually more than 20% of the carbon soaked up by forests in recent decades. Okay. So what does this change? Should we be putting down more cement, planting fewer forests? Well, <laughs> uh, well, cement is actually still releasing a lot more CO2 than it's absorbing. So it's not like cement is actually good for the environment. It's just not as bad as scientists thought to really sort of get to a, an equation where cement is actually absorbing more carbon dioxide than it's releasing, we really have to change the way we manufacture cement. We have to be a lot less reliant on fossil fuels, for example. That would really cut down the amount of CO2 that's being released during the process, which means when cement is soaking up CO2, it's actually maybe having a net beneficial effect on the environment. Now we have a story on the occupational hazards of tomb building. Okay, Dave, take us to the Valley of the Kings, 3,000 years ago in Egypt. What is going on? Well, this, is a, this was a very popular place for pharaohs to be buried in royal tombs. And as you can imagine, um, if you think about these tombs, there was a lot of excavation that had to go on, sort of like creating the tombs, but also a lot of artistry, a lot of the painting on the walls and the tomb itself that required a lot of workers. And the workers came from a nearby village, but it was actually kind of a uh, not so fun of a commute. They actually had to walk up these hills that were uh, anywhere from a rise of about 151 meters high. And they did this for at least 161 days of the year. And they were doing it for 25 to 35 years per person. These were long careers these artisans had. And so the question is, what sort of impact did this have? on their bodies. How do we know so much about what these workers did during the day, what their lives were like? Well, they lived in this uh, village called Deir el-Medina, and it was this state-sponsored village. We know a lot about the village just from the texts that the villagers left behind. We know sort of what daily life was like, but what researchers haven't really looked at until now is the actual remains of the people themselves. These were not people that were buried like the pharaohs. They were sort of all buried together in these mass graves. You sort of have this jumble of bones. And so we don't know much about their physical condition. And that's where this researcher comes in and sorts out the bones and learns a little bit more about what their life was like. And what she found is evidence of osteoarthritis, which is this degenerative bone disease, was present in the hips of around a third of the remains that she analyzed. And it was much more common in men than in women. And that's sort of unexpected because you can imagine these people when they're doing their work, they're doing a lot of digging, carving, and painting. That seems like that would put a lot of stress on the upper body. But she's seeing a lot of stress in sort of this degenerative disease in sort of the lower extremities. And so the women are staying in the village and the men are commuting to do this artisan work. Is that why she thinks they have degeneration in their lower body? Right, because they, they're the ones that are making this trek for you know more than half the year. 
it wasn't a very long journey to get to the Valley of Kings, but it was sort of a treacherous journey, again, because they had to sort of hike up and down these pretty steep hills. Mm -hmm. And this is a clever way of figuring this out. But what's the takeaway here? I mean, isn't Egyptian tomb building kind of notorious for being (laughs) harmful to workers? Yeah, this sort of adds to the picture of, you know, although, again, when we think of the tomb building, we think of the harm of actually building the tombs, building the pyramids itself. And the sort of the interesting piece this adds to the story is that it wasn't just working on the tombs themselves that was hazardous, it was actually just getting to the tombs in the first place. Last up, we have a story on one group's attempt to take down animal research. There's a lot going on in Washington, D.C. right now as the new administration gears up to take over and different groups, factions are giving it their best shot, trying to influence the government during this time of change. Our science policy folks have been crazy busy. And Dave, I haven't seen you for like a week. You've been out reporting on stories like this. Uh, One is on a new group taking aim at animal research. What's new about this group? Well, typically when we think about groups that are going after biomedical research with animals, we think about sort of far left groups, groups like PETA, maybe fringe animal rights activists. What's different about this group is it does have some of those elements, but it actually has a lot of elements from the other side of the spectrum. In fact, the far right side of the spectrum where you have people who are fiscal conservatives, people concerned about what they call runaway government spending, wasted taxpayer dollars. And you typically don't see these two sides of the political spectrum joining together for a common cause. How did this new group, uh, which is called White Coat Waste, get the interest of fiscal conservatives? Is this going to somehow save money? Well, I mean, that's what the sort of the founder believes. The founder is a a guy who actually, his name's Anthony Bellotti, and he's a former Republican strategist. He worked on a lot of right-leaning issues, such as campaigns that were waged against Obamacare and Planned Parenthood. But when he was doing that, he sort of saw that those campaigns were really framed as a waste of taxpayer money. So he said, you know, nobody's really saying that for the animal research debate. You know, why don't I try to frame this as, hey, the government is sort of wasting all of your tax dollars on these experiments, which, you know, we consider redundant or cruel or just sort of not useful. Do you really want your tax dollars to be spent on that rather than sort of framing it as like, oh, these poor animals, you know, we shouldn't have these poor animals suffering in labs, which is typically what you see from some of these more left-leaning groups uh, like PETA. And they're aiming specifically at government-run labs rather than government-funded labs? Or what? What? what's their target at this point? The target at this point is actually dog research because they know that's going to get a lot of public support. And also only dog research that's occurring in government labs like NIH labs, Department of Defense labs, Centers for Disease Control. So not research that might be happening at a university that's government-funded, although that is eventually their target, as well as other animals as well, mice, rats, cats, other animals that are researched on that's also supported by government dollars. You've been following this debate, the pushback against animal research by various groups and researchers taking a stand on it as well for a long time, Dave. Do you think that this approach, you know, including a fiscal concern into it, is that going to work? Well, it's certainly different, which is why sort of I was interested in it because it's sort of taking a different angle. But, you know, this approach faces a lot of roadblocks. First of all, there's a lot of support for biomedical research in Congress. One of the things this group is trying to do is trying to assemble this coalition of Republican and Democratic Congress people to support them. But these people are also hearing a lot from the biomedical research community. This is a community that obviously supports animal research, but also from the public that 
gets a lot out of animal research. In fact, these dog studies, which this group has targeted, have been really important biomedical research proponents say in things like developing pacemakers, organ transplants, in studying diseases like cancer and hemophilia. And that's not to mention the millions of mice and rats and other animals that are also used that these groups say are very important for human health. So, you know, I think that's going to be a big roadblock for this group when Congress people consider their constituents and the health benefits, the medical benefits that a lot of people believe they get from animal research. Mm -hmm. And we have seen changes in attitude towards the treatment of animals in this country. I mean, we're talk we've talked on the podcast about killer whale refuges, you know, chimps no longer being used for certain types of research. Is this part of the same movement? Does it match what's happening in other countries like in Europe? Well, I think the reason that this movement has been able to gain some traction is because we are seeing changes in public attitudes. A recent Pew poll showed that 50% of the American public now opposes animal research. And the government itself, for example, the NIH, has ended support for research or at least biomedical research on chimpanzees. So there is a bit of a sea change happening in public opinion. But again, these groups are going to run against a, a wall of people who want to see biomedical progress and who who are adamant that research on these animals is really important for understanding human health and disease. Okay, Dave. So you have a quiz question for me? I do, Sarah. New research shows that this landmass shifts back and forth by millimeters each year. Is it Florida, Hawaii, Japan, or Australia? Okay, I'm going to pick one that's not attached to a continent. So, uh, Japan. You are incorrect. It is actually <laughs> Australia. It turns out that there's a large-scale movement of water between the southern and northern hemispheres that triggers seasonal undulations, which causes Australia to shift one millimeter to the northwest and dip down two to three millimeters on its northwestern side every year. All right. Okay. Well, Dave, why don't you tell us what else is on the site this week? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about why some of us have bad hair uncombable hair, that is. It turns out that's in your genes, has to do with some gene mutations. Also, what we're learning about memory in dogs. <laughs> For Science and Science Policy blog, we've got a story about why the World Health Organization has ended its designation of Zika as a international public health emergency. And also speaking of politics, which we touched on earlier, uh, the latest on the Trump transition to the White House, which will be happening in a couple months, including a story about what happened when Donald Trump met with prominent anti-vaccine advocates during his campaign. So be sure to check out all those stories plus the quiz on our site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. Some kinds of data can only be gathered at night. If you want to learn the habits of nocturnal animals or ponder distant stars, the witching hour is the only time. Yet research shows that workers on the night shift suffer consequences. Elevated health risks and a restricted social calendar, for example. What about the scientists who work mainly in the dark? I'm Alexa Billow, and Sam Keen is here to discuss his article about the night owls of the research world. Sam, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So first question, are night shifts really necessary? Who is working to do science at two in the morning? And what are we learning that we can't learn at like a normal time? 
Well, in some cases, it is necessary. If you think about people who are doing observational astronomy or people who are studying bats or other nocturnal creatures, there was a woman who was studying sunflowers, which are most active and doing most of their growth and development right before sunrise. And there's really no other way to study some things unless you are up during the night. So in some cases, yeah, you have to be up during the night or you're just going to miss the details, the information that you need to do a scientific study. In the article, you say that sleep deprivation makes us measurably dumber. Measurably in what way? What does lack of sleep do to our brains? It makes it slower. You can lose motivation a little bit. You just don't feel as sharp as you normally do. Specifically, I talk about an astronaut who was up in the space station. She was doing various experiments, and every once in a while, she had to do what was called a slam shift, where she would work a normal day, then take a little two-hour nap, and then she had to be up again to coordinate experiments with people in Russia. So it was a different time zone shift. And every once in a while, she would stop and she would take these little computer tests where they had her do very simple things like add a short string of numbers or try to match patterns on a screen, something like that, something that a normal adult would be able to do fairly easily. And she said that, you know, we're kidding ourselves to think that even if we feel like we're not that tired, that our brains are working properly. You just make small mistakes Or in some cases, if you're extremely sleep-deprived, you become a little clumsy, you start dropping things, accidents are more common. So even if you don't feel it necessarily, your body's not working the way it should be. So I'm curious, did the astronaut say anything about, since it takes 90 minutes to go around the Earth, your day-night cycle is 90 minutes long, does that cause any disruptions as well? I thought it would, but she said it wasn't so bad. They have good, strong windows on the International Space Station. So they don't really notice the constant sunrises. I thought that was just going to completely mess up their sleep cycle and everything would be completely different. But she said it's actually not that big of a change for them because they're working almost entirely on interior lighting. So not that much of a change. Is there any fear that sleep deprivation affects the quality of science that gets done during the night? Like if people are getting clumsier, are they getting worse at pipetting or programming their telescope? There was a couple of cases. The woman I mentioned who was doing work with the sunflowers, her fine motor skills broke down after five or six days, and she started dropping these very delicate plant organs that she was looking at, losing them in the grass. So she was a little worried that, you know, because she had basically lost a whole day of data that it was going to kind of submarine the research that she was trying to do. Or, you know, people just make mistakes. They forget things. They don't set up experiments properly. So it can happen. It's a little different if you just have to point a telescope at something and it's going to record all the data. Then it's, you know, more personal suffering. But in some cases, people are making small mistakes or just a little more clumsy, and it can harm the experiments as well. Describe the personal suffering, because I think you had a few anecdotes in the article about what people are spending their 3 a.m. 
telescope shifts doing? Uh, basically just falling asleep in the chair over and over. It's just really hard to, you know, keep yourself motivated when there's no one else around and you just kind of want to slump back in the chair and fall asleep. So people would come up with these sort of odd coping strategies just to keep themselves awake. One man mentioned making animal noises sometimes, like grunts and howls just to keep himself awake. Someone else mentioned that they practiced their favorite karaoke songs, just screaming them at the top of their lungs to keep themselves awake. So people do some some odd things at night. They'd probably be embarrassed if anyone else was around. You also talk in the article about polar researchers who work one long night shift that goes on for months. Is being awake at night different from just having it be dark all of the time? It was different in a couple of ways. One, even if you're working at night in a place where it has day and night, you still have some sort of regulation to your day. Even if it's flipped around, you know, you should be going to bed at a certain time based on cues that you're getting from the sun. Uh, a couple people in the Antarctic, they basically lost all track of what time it was, and they would sleep for 10 hours and then work for 20 hours. So their basic daily rhythms were completely thrown off, and they didn't even realize it in some cases. It was just how their bodies naturally decided to do things. Things. The other thing I didn't expect was people mentioned that there are some experiments that are very light sensitive. So they have to shut all of the windows inside the base at all times, basically. And they said that it kind of changed their perspective on the world because they could never look outside the window. They called it a mental myopia, where basically they kind of lost perspective and even started to get a little paranoid or snappy. It changed their mental outlook as well, just being kind of cooped up inside this box all the time. Did they make any effort to keep in sync with one another as they got out of sync with the 24-hour schedule? I'm sure some of them had to, but the people I talked to were technicians who were kind of doing this longer term work or projects where they were kind of on their own. So they were just sort of adrift where they were working on their own schedule. So I'm sure it, for some people, they would have to kind of keep on a schedule with others. But for people who aren't tethered necessarily to other people's schedules, they were just sort of adrift. Is there any push to get people to stop working night shifts or do these scientists really secretly or not so secretly love what they're doing? I think it's different in different fields. There's definitely a push to stop people working, say, 36-hour shifts in medicine where you're dealing with patients and where a mistake can be a matter of life and death. So there is a push there. In other cases, astronomy, for instance, a lot of the work is automated nowadays, so there's less of a need for people to be up at night. Some fields like biology, you know, if you're observing something that's active at night, you really can't do anything. You have to do the research at night or there's no other way around it. But in some cases, even in astronomy where it's becoming more usual to not work at night, it is kind of a badge of honor in some cases for people to stay up at night and to do this work. And a lot of people I talked to, even though they would talk for you know 10 minutes about how miserable it was, they would always kind of stop at the end and say, you know, but I really enjoyed parts of it. So I think all of them do have these nice memories of, you know, a beautiful sunrise or just a moment where everything came together. And even though they were exhausted, it had been worth the sacrifice of staying up at night. 
Sam, thanks so much for joining us today. All right. Thanks for having me. Sam Keen writes an article on the nocturnal habits of certain researchers this week in science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.